afternoon. This is Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio. We're here on Lexington Community Radio. We're here every Tuesday, live at 2 p.m. with your hosts, Chef Wita Michael and Rona Roberts. Good afternoon. And Chris Michael. Oh, yeah, I'm Chris Michael. <laughs> Hi, Rona. Hi, Wita. I missed you. We missed you terribly last week. Well, I but missed you, too. But I had two wonderful guests. I know. Heather Lyons and um, Sherry Maddock. And uh, really, we had a good conversation. Lots of conversation about the plant side of the food world, not the cooking side. I love that part. Yeah, me too. <laughs> kind of necessary. No cooking, no cooking possible without the plant side. That's right. They come first. Speaking of which, who had something wonderful from a plant or otherwise <laughs> this week to taste or in, in, your, in, in, the, in the liquid or the solid form? Do you want me to start, Chris? You have to think. He has to think about it. All right. Well, well we had two minute. great events. I have to confess, we had our company-wide potluck on Sunday afternoon, so all of the... Everyone who wanted to brought a dish to Holly Hill. Oh, but my we, gosh. Do we, they compete? Is that a competitive No, it's event? not competitive. <laughs> well, there's no outward competition. No, that's, no yeah. yeah <laughs> oh, my goodness. But um, one of our sous chefs, Tyler McNabb's father's a really great hunter. And so we had venison and we had goose and we had wild duck. So we were like smoking goose breasts. And oh, it was so darn good. And then um, we did... Uh, Round the world went to Peru last week, and so my two favorite things from that was the yuca frita, which is fried yuca, which is so easy and delicious, and tostones, which are the twice-cooked plantains. Just was a good food week. Yuca yuca and yucca are two different things. Is that right? No, they're the same. Oh, they're the same? Um, Yeah, it's the same plant, and you you just want to peel, and it has that brown. You can get it at any grocery store or at... Uh, the Mex- some of the Mexican grocery stores, and the way to do it is to peel it and boil it, cut it into sticks, and then lay it on a sheet pan and freeze it and fry it from the frozen form. And it is, huh. it puts French fries to shame. It's so darn good. Oh, it's really good. Interesting. I think my week was um, punctuated by soups. Although today is just mm. splendid in Central Kentucky, sunny and mm-hmm. oh, lovely warm um we had a lot of gray and drizzly weather mm-hmm. um over the past week and and chilly i mean just like ugh. so soup was the thing so we had uh carrot ginger soup and Ooh. jane griggson's celery soup both from food 52 those are fabulous simple re- i think i'm learning to make soup finally. what's the celery soup you had at jane griggson's uh, mm. jane griggson has written i think a, she's written a cookbook and it might be a vegetarian cookbook i'm not sure but this is a, an excerpt maybe from it and it's, it's a very straightforward preparation that uses a fair amount of butter and mm. at the front end with mm. the celery and the onions um and then you don't add cream um, and it just is so beautiful. Yeah. And I, I happen to have made recently, um, as I often do, um, homemade organic chicken broth from bones yeah. from Elmwood Stock Farm. Um, yeah. So using that in the soups. Um, and let's see, a third one that I made was a sweet potato soup with nutmeg and cinnamon and mm. cream from Epicurious. It had like, I don't remember, 30... Mm. all five-star reviews. Nobody didn't like it. How could you not like it? You know, you start out with sweet potato. Oh, it's sweet potato maple <laughs> soup. So, you know, it's sweet mm. sweet on top of sweet with spices. So, yes, we 
I had a soupy week. Well, all of those sound so good. How about you, Chris? Um, I think uh, I had a beverage that I enjoyed. <laughs> surprise, Ooh, surprise. Was a, a dry, sparkling cider from um, France. Can we have some? <laughs> I think I have a bottle at home. Yes, you do. Mm. Is it really in, is it sold in stores? I think yeah. I think it's sold locally. I can't tell you exactly where, but I could find out. Mm, that sounds good. Let's um, find out and put it on our. Do you remember but, uh, the name of it? Uh, I can't no, remember. you can't remember it. That's the problem with sparkling cider. <laughs> it takes I away will the memory find cells. Out and we can post it on yes, Facebook. Yes, please. Okay. Let's let's do. <laughs> Rona, I have a question for you. All right. So you were saying you made the chicken stock. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I, I make stock all the time, live and die by it. Um, what is the difference between, and I've tried to find this out on my own, but I can't, between what people are calling bone broth mm-hmm. right now and regular old stock? I don't think there's any bro- any difference. We've it, just it, relabeled I it? Mean, I mean, so in my old-fashioned understanding, broth had... Um, some of the muscle parts of an animal in, included in mm-hmm. the preparation. Yeah, I would And say. bones were, no, bones had only those little parts that cling. Right. Um, but were mostly bones. Um, but I think we've gotten into a new thing where we call uh, broth probably what's made primarily from bones. And it's so sexy. It's so sexy. Well, in the old days, you would make a stock. And then if you wanted to be like consomme as a broth. Mm-hmm. So an mm-hmm. old-fashioned consomme would be a reinforced stock. So you would hmm. start out with chicken stock, and then you might add chicken to that stock, like you were just saying, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, simmer that. Mm-hmm. And then you would clarify it with, like, egg white uh-huh, or ground chicken. Uh-huh. No, I was just wondering, because I know it's a really trendy thing. Um, and we can shout out to Caldo locally, which uh-huh. I think just moved downtown. Yeah. Um, where... Maybe we'll have to do a show on this and find yeah, out. Yeah. Um, I heard a very dismissive little section of America's Test Kitchen yesterday where a food expert was saying, oh, there's no scientific studies whatsoever that show that broth is good for you. And I was like, you know, I don't really care. I think broth makes a big difference to me if I'm not feeling well, Um, like coming down with a cold, I often kind of stop it. Um, But also, I just use it all the time in cooking. And I would say my broth and your broth would be very different. I do the simplest sort of most straightforward thing of all, mm-hmm. which is I take the bones of whatever we have eaten, I put them in a pot with water, I don't add anything most of the time, and I simmer, and a little, oh, I do add about a couple of tablespoons of cider vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, to pull re- everything out. Yes, helps release the minerals into the broth, and cook for, usually um, on my slowest temperature burner for about 24 hours. Mm-hmm. It's not highly flavorful on its own, and that's not how I use it. I use it in all these other preparations. Right, it's, an ap- yes. it's what we call an apparai, or mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it's an ingredient, which is, it's an ingredient, that's right. And it's, when I used to think that to make broth, I had to find onions and celery and carrots and all kinds of other things and bay leaf and salt and, you know, all, all kinds of, uh, give it a lot of attention. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. And now I never don't do it. I right. always use those bones. And yeah. my, fortunately, my neighbor across the street who has a house full of um, funny little dogs and a big dog, um, they eat all of the leftover bones at the end when they're all soft and oh yeah you see so oh yeah yeah 
What were you going to... Oh, according to uh, the magical internet... <laughs> Which we get here, even in the studio. Bone broth is simmered much longer than stock. Okay. To mm. extract as much gelatin and mineral content the from collagen. the bones Yeah, it's as possible. possible. Okay. So it starts you know, out like stock, but maybe not with so many aromatics and vegetables, but that's mainly meant to get the as much nutrient out of the because when you you go on the internet here's why i think it might be interesting to pursue this and i'm going to take that as a challenge from that guy on america's test kitchens because i completely disagree i think broth is very good for you so i'm going to try to prove that on this show david katz david katz okay i i'm going to try to to prove that of course i was raised that way Mm -hmm. but i just think that that's wholly wrong um I used to work with this little Peruvian chef named Alex. His wife was named Fanny, and they <laughs> they really taught me a lot. And he would insist we would make the veal stock, mm-hmm. and that's a very long mm-hmm. cook time. That's a twenty four hour mm-hmm. cook time. And he would insist he would drink a cup. Now, not mm-hmm. many people can get a mm-hmm. cup of veal stock down. Mm-hmm. It's not tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would insist on drinking, and he always said it was for his strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's right. But it's not just him. I mean, I chicken broth, I grew up just, it was our, my mom's answer to every oncoming cold and flu <laughs> season ever. And it, it's got to be better for you than NyQuil or yeah. something like that. <laughs> anyway, I just wondered if you knew, and now we will, we will find, that is a new subject for us that we will investigate whether. I'll tell you one more interesting thing <clears throat> that I've read. <clears throat> Excuse me. The the um, scientist Paul Jaminet, who's written a wonderful book called A Perfect Health Diet, which isn't about a diet. I'm sure his publisher made him name it that. Right. Um, it's about how, it's a story of how he and his wife healed their own midlife, a series of midlife illnesses, and then they help a lot of other people now. But he talks. They love broth, bone broth. So he says that they uh, do 24, 18 to 24 hours. Take that off. Use it. They fill the pot. They leave the bones in the pot. They fill yeah. it with water. They do it again. And he's got a photo, a, a series of photos somewhere on his on his blog, of the three different um, makings and what each looks like. So recently, I had beef bones and they were very big. And I right. tried a second cooking. Sure enough, the second time, there's still flavor and and it gets this very yeah. cloudy look. Um, and it's and it's much more jelly, much yeah. more gelatin. So. Well, we that's a there's a French term for that. It's not decoupage, decoulage. Decoup- it's not decoupage. <laughs> it is kind of sticky. What is it? Remoulage. 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 I'll have to make sure I have that exactly right. That's using the bones the second time. Uh-huh. Every time I do a big veal stock, I always do a second go around. And the first go round you would use mainly for demi glace or uh-huh. things like that. Uh-huh. But the second go round, it's a, just a beautiful broth. You can use it for any number of purposes um but yeah that's a classic old old technique well well let's segue Wita, if okay you're ready yeah uh, because ready. i feel like we are talking about um we're putting language around rediscovered um uses you know complete uses or approaching complete uses of the gifts of the earth to mm-hmm. us to eat um, which is something that interests you greatly and has for a long time. And today, we're going to interrogate you. Um, <laughs> and the, I just want to say re- a, a little bit about the reasons. This is women, This is Women's History Month. Um, women, it's not hard to find um, influential women 
who are involved in food systems and food and cooking and cookbooks and um, food advocacy. But there, we have so many in Kentucky, and I am, have uh, learned so much from Weta and have been so inspired by her for at least 20 years that I my thought was, let's start with Weta because so many people want to know more about what makes Weta Weta. Oh, man. And how did you? <laughs> so she wants to talk about the people that have inspired her, and we're going to let her. But I wondered, Weta, if you'd be willing just quickly to just sketch a little biography um, and, you know, the key points. And I'll, I'll jump in. You'll jump in because you know my bio pretty well at this point. I might, but, you know, there's always more to learn. <laughs> well... Um, I grew up here in Lexington, and my dad and mom moved here in 1972. I was a second grader, and I you were born. In I was Wyoming. born in Thermopolis, Wyoming, along with both my parents and um, and even my stepmom. And um, I, my mom and dad. This is an interesting story, and I don't want to digress really. But they grew up in a very small in this very small town in the middle of Wyoming. And um, they were very young parents, just teenagers. <clears throat> my dad went to the University of Wyoming, and when it was time for him to get his Ph.D., he was really a brilliant man. And they they went to Tulane University in in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So they drove from Laramie, Wyoming, to Tulane. They had never seen a, a black person before. And their car caught on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Right outside Louisiana, right in Louisiana, right outside New Orleans. I'm hearing a gothic novel. And I was about two to three years old. Can you remember it? I can barely remember things. And I think sometimes I just remember the story, like I've Mm -hmm. put images to the story. Mm -hmm. I've heard the story so many times. So these sharecroppers came running up from the fields. This is the first black person my parents have ever met. And they came running up from the fields while my our car was on fire. My mom and dad are getting me out of the car. They, we were pulling a trailer. They throw up in the trailer, and everything that we had, they saved for us. Oh, what and a beautiful story. It was a great story. <laughs> and it was a, an introduction to New Orleans, and, and this would have been in 1968. Um, so it was a really racially divided mm-hmm. city, and it was it's really it – I think formed a lot of um, my parents and, and, and my ideas around the kind of society we want to have, the kind of society we currently have, how to address racial issues. And um, it was just, and it was fascinating for them. They were two teenage kids. Like my dad was 21. My mom was, I guess by the time they moved to New Orleans, they weren't teenagers anymore. They were, they were 21 and 20 or something mm-hmm. with a three-year-old. And um, and they fell in love with that city and all the food in it. Mm, of course. Then we moved and to Lexington later. I think that just one little life lesson in that that is beyond just the goodness of the actual moment, and that is that here were people working nearby something that they saw as life-threatening and certainly property-threatening who pitched in. They they may not even remember this themselves, or they may. We thank them from yeah. here and now, and partly because of the long-term impact that that one simple human action has had. That's a glorious story. It is a. It is that we don't always know how we impact others when we do something like that. Right. It, it changed my parents' life. 
I mean, <laughs> which which undoubtedly changed your and your siblings' it, lives. <laughs> it never they never stopped talking about that moment. It was seminal in all of in all of our lives. And my siblings are much younger than I am, so I was an only child for at least eight years, almost nine years, and and then my sister was born. But for that little period of time in my life, my mom and dad and I were a trio. And so we had a series of shared experiences that were formative for all of us. And I hadn't thought about it a lot until the last couple of years. Um, And the last, my mom, you know, passed away last year. And in the last years of her life, she and my father were able to find the remnants of their relationship and become good friends. After marrying, divorcing and marrying other people. And right. Then, and then they became friends again. Yes, how yeah. beautiful. It was a wonderful mm-hmm. thing for us then as adults to be able to have, again, a little mm-hmm. triangle of a relationship mm-hmm. and see Willa, our daughter, Chris and I's daughter, as part of that. Okay, so we've got you to Food City, New Orleans. <laughs> Food City. <laughs> and you're two. And then what happened in your life, in the long and beautiful arc of your life? Well, we um, we were in Puerto Rico for a year, and that was a, you know, I, I was about, I did kindergarten and first grade in Puerto Rico, and my mom and dad embraced food at every turn. Mm-hmm. So New Orleans changed their lives in terms of Every, a myriad of issues, but really around food as well. They had never had seafood before. They had never had an oyster, seen a shrimp, ate, eaten a crab. So you can think about how their lives really changed. And I wholeheartedly embraced all of it, <laughs> at least I've been told. And the same in Puerto Rico. And then uh, after that, my dad got his PhD, did his dissertation, all that stuff. His first job was at the University of Kentucky Medical Center. And we moved into a house on State Street. And, Which uh, is famous. For those of you who famous. don't know, this is a famous street in Lexington. Infamous, too. Infamous. <laughs> Not because of Ouida. <clears throat> and uh, I love, uh, so I consider myself, uh, I'm, I mean, I know a lot of people wouldn't consider my, consider me a native Kentuckian, but I am a Kentuckian. And, we, we, we've, we wave you in after 20 years. Yeah. So and you've been right. here much more that's, than 20. That's right. 22 at least. So it's it was I went through school all the way through school in Lexington and um, went to the University of Kentucky. Okay, let's just get this debate thing in here. Yeah. Did you do debate in high school? I did. I was a high school debater at Henry Clay High School. Henry Clay High School has a long and storied Mm -hmm. tradition of debate teams there. And um, I loved debate and uh, joined the UK debate team which was a, another life-changing moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> May I say things about it that you won't say probably? So sure. I'll just say that Weta not only loved debate, but excelled at it. And um, in her senior year, I think, she mm-hmm. and, and her partner uh, won the national debate tournament, which is a um, only two people get to do that every year in the whole country. Uh, and they beat out Harvard and the University of Michigan and Dartmouth and all these um, debate yeah. schools, Stanford. Um and as I recall the story, we I think there had been one more female long time before you. This was in nineteen eighty. I I won in nineteen eighty six, and the woman who had won, and one other woman had won, and it was in like in I want to say sixty sixty five or sixty six or something along those lines. But just to be clear, when they came to give the awards, which were watches, they didn't happen to have a woman's watch handy. That's right. <laughs> They gave everyone in the final debate a watch, and women had been in the final debate several consecutive years, but had never won the final debate. Uh-huh. And so 
there was a gang of us women debaters in 1986, and we were all just a, we were just in, incensed that there was no women's <laughs> watch ready to be given out. And, and that changed, actually. We made them change that. So they, they have a women's, a women's watch always ready now. So, uh, we do, so for people who don't know, debate um, is organized around a topic every year. Mm-hmm. Did you do any, any food topics in debate in any of your years? There were some environmental topics that included debate around pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't really have it. But debate influenced my... Uh, I always loved cooking. My mother raised me to love cooking, and, and so did my dad. <clears throat> and when you are on a debate team, you travel all the time, and you mainly are traveling to large urban areas, Chicago to go to Northwestern, uh, the Harvard, mm-hmm. you go to Boston, you go down to Atlanta to go to the Emory Tournament. So you're going all around the country to these debate tournaments. <clears throat> and every big city, we would try a different ethnic cuisine and really go, went to a lot of really neat restaurants. And debaters love great food and they mm-hmm. love great wine. And um, sure, I started drinking wine way before it was legal to drink. And I think I know my first wine that I ever had from a uh, in a debate context was from Dallas Perkins, who's the coach of the Harvard, one of the co-coaches of the Harvard debate te- team. We're outing him. Yeah, well, I think at this point, I was very close to being, I was like, <laughs> I, wasn't, I, I was no I, child. Maybe also. the statute has run on what that. State, what state <laughs> but were you we in? Dra- we drank a Chateau E. Kim, Christopher. Oh, wow. I know. So I, mean, I think that's legal. Any, <coughs> anywhere, anytime. Yes. I mean, um, so it's, that debate really played a big part in how I learned about food and wine. Okay. I'm, I'm getting ready to have you think about, have you jump into the things that you really want to talk about, but be, maybe, maybe we should take a break first before, before we do. The big curiosity in my life and in other people's lives about Weta Michael is, okay, you just won the national debate tournament. You're finishing at UK. You probably majored in political science. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Yep. Um, and um, instead of going to law school and being the top of your class and doing the things, e- either going <laughs> to um, you know, end the death penalty in America as, <laughs> as, as the people who don't care about money do, or going into Cravath, Swain, and Moore as the people who do care about money do, um, <laughs> You decided to go to culinary school, and I'm so curious how you thought about that. I had a midlife crisis early. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a quarter-life crisis? (laughs) It was a quarter-life. I think everybody has a crisis Mm -hmm. at 20, don't you Mm -hmm. think? Your 20s are just so difficult. I agree. Um, I felt as if I was going along a path in my life and had not given it much thought. And I was a really good debater. I worked incredibly hard at it. I loved it. Um, but I didn't feel like it was, I felt like it was an ordained thing that you would go right Mm -hmm. from that. And and I didn't want to be thoughtless about it. And I knew I would love law school. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that more concerned me that was that I wouldn't love being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I don't know, I might've been a great lawyer. I have no idea. I don't know why I just felt, I felt an overwhelming sense of panic and anxiety about just marching along a path without giving it any thought. Mm -hmm. And I knew I loved food and cooking. And -hmm. and at that time it was 1987. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have the kind of restaurant culture we have now. There was no food network. No one was doing what you were just deciding to do. I think back and I'm like, wow, when I wrote my thesis in college, 
my dad, the only computer available to me was the Apple IIe that my dad had kind of like rigged up and built. And it was on that old daisy wheel printer, Mm -hmm. and it only held three pages of memory. And, you know, so all of the stuff that we take for granted today didn't exist when we were in in college. And there were no women chefs in our community, really. And uh, being a chef also wasn't considered a career because there was no media around it. It was Gourmet Magazine. That was about it. Um, it was just kind of all beginning. Mm-hmm. All of it was just beginning. Yeah. And you wanted to be on the frontier. You were wet. You were from Wyoming, really, and you wanted to be on the frontier? Is that part of it? Part of it. <laughs> I had done a lot of cooking by that time, and I really, really wanted to see if I could do it and what it was all about. I was really curious about it. I used to read Gourmet Magazine from cover to cover, and there was a restaurant uh, called Arizona 206 in New York City. The chef's name was Brandon Walsh. This would have been in the late 80s, mid-80s. And um, <clears throat> he was kind of, in my mind, the first young celebrity mm. chef. Now, there wasn't a lot of material around mm-hmm. to be a celebrity mm-hmm. in. But uh, so I, when I moved to New York City, I moved in ni- the summer of 1987. I had two roommates that I knew from debate, both going off to law school. I thought I would be going to law school. Did not go. My dad said, well, it's all fine and well if you don't want to go to law school, but you need to support yourself. Opened up the New York Times, got a job in a restaurant, and I tried to apply at Arizona 206, and, and they just they left me waiting mm. in the waiting room for like five hours and never mm. came out to interview me. Mm. Um, mm. That, New York they is, made a mistake. That's their loss. Yes, they did. I eventually they did work at Arizona. Uh, the chef changed, and I... I did my internship there from from culinary school there, and it was a wonderful experience. Mm. Yeah. Well, and of course, if you hadn't gone to culinary school, you wouldn't have met the person who's about to take us on a break here for that's for, right, you know, for 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 a moment. That's who my that? guess. That's you. <laughs> Are we taking a break? Take a break. Yes. Okay, we'll be back in a minute. This is Buck Ryan, director of the Citizen Kentucky Project of the Scripps Howard First Amendment Center at the University of Kentucky. You're listening to WLXL 95.7 FM, fue el director de Escuela de Peridísimo at the University of Kentucky. Buena suerte a la Lexington Community Radio. Thank you. 
Nostalgia back here on Lexington's Community Radio. We are Hot War Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio uh, with your hosts, Rona Roberts, Weta Michael, <laughs> and I'm Chris Michael, and we are talking to Weta Michael. I know. I feel a little weird about that, actually. <laughs> it's so fun. I'm having the best time. I want to do about four shows on this topic. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. So, so Weta, so you were very interested in cooking um, you had done a lot of cooking. You got a job cooking while you were sort of trying to figure out your next move after college. And now now, now tell the story however you'd like to, please. <laughs> well, so I'm in New York City, and I, I, have a, I worked at a various number of restaurants, and it was fabulous. I, I recommend to every young person, hightail it to New York City and just work for a while. Mm-hmm. It's filled with all kinds of young people doing, mm-hmm. doing their thing. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool thing. And I decided to go to the Culinary Institute of America, which is in Hyde Park, New York, which is a short train ride from Manhattan. <coughs> the first day of school, I met Chris Michael. Uh-huh. Aha. Always... At that point, you were Weta. Papka. Weta. I'm Christy. trying to your middle. Christy. Weta Christy Papka, yes. Weta Christy Papka. Yes. So I met, I met Chris the first day of school. We didn't become friends right away, but we were in the same group. And at the Culinary Institute, they start a group of students every three weeks, usually. Mm -hmm. So we were in that same class Mm -hmm. together and became fast friends. Uh, And I had another boyfriend at the time. I think he's shaking his head. (laughs) (laughs) I like that look. (laughs) Bumped him off somewhere along the line. (laughs) He swept me off my feet. We became good friends and basically started walking down to FDR's house every day, every afternoon after Mm. school. And and the Culinary Institute is just an incredible Mm. place Mm. for anybody who has not visited. It's an old monastery on the banks of the Hudson River. And, um, it's within walking distance. You just walk right down the railroad tracks to FDR's forest, you know, mm-hmm. and you can walk all through that. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. spot. I got to see it four or five years ago. It was like going to, you know, a shrine. It is. It it's, was for me anyway. It, it was for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was for both of us. We just became very good friends. And by the time we got to the summer after we started, we were... Uh, more than friends, and we moved in together within five months of having started dating, and that was it. We've been together ever since, and that was 1990. 1990. We well, got married. That was, that was a good year. That was a good year. So that was a long... That was. Uh, we look at each other now. We can't believe we've been together this long. Can, can we, honey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the non-committal response from, from our... Uh, from He's our... too cool for school. <laughs> Don't let him fool you. So, so we came back to Kentucky after after you you finished school. Yes, you you brought this guy to Kentucky. I did. He was he was a Long Islander, maybe or something like that. Yes, correct. Native to Long Long Island, Long Island, Long Island. And um, after school was over, we moved to East Hampton, Long Island, together and worked for a year to save money. Um, Bought ourselves a little pickup truck, and then we drove across the country. We went from Long Island to Santa Rosa, California, and we we were on the road for several months, uh, going there and coming back. And when we got back to Lexington, this is after being, we drove Route 66, we went to Portland, Oregon, we we went all around Redwood Forest. Um, When we got back to Lexington, Chris had asked me to marry him before, right the first day of the trip. And... uh, 
so when we got back here... Did you make him wait the whole trip before you said yes? <laughs> oh, he already knew I was going to say... I think I probably said, you better be asking me to marry you. Because <laughs> he had to go meet my grandmother. Oh. And it would be important for her, uh, uh-huh. us to be engaged by that time. By the time we got to Casper, Wyoming, we needed to be legitimate. But um, so when we got back to Kentucky, I was struck by... I had missed my mom so much. And I really adored my mom and stepdad and and she was so excited to plan a wedding and it was it was important to her that we do that wedding here in Kentucky and so and not in New York and so I stayed uh here and Chris went home to New York but then he missed me too much and came right back down and we've been here ever since nice yeah that was in 1993 so we have a list of proper names in our show plan for today that's probably there might be there might be 20 25 proper names in this list of I people know. that have We don't have to talk about it. Well no, everybody. I'm just I'm just remarking on the fact that your interests are so wide, your curiosity, your um your intellect, your openness to to influences from uh, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. <laughs> Um, and so talk, talk a little bit about when you began, you you read Gourmet Magazine from cover to cover, were you already picking out names and thinking about women who were making their way in this world? Or how did, how did this begin? When I say names, by the way, I'm talking about female names. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, when I was 16, I drew the plan of my first restaurant and I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but I know it was going to be an art gallery and a restaurant together. <laughs> so I started thinking really young about that, and I don't know what prompted me to do that. Um, Did you have a favorite restaurant? No. No? Nope. And when I was 16, I moved to Australia with my dad. We were there together, just the two of us, for a year while he was on sabbatical. And this was when my parents were divorcing. And it was at that time that I was drawing all these plans and I did a lot of cooking at home. I mean, my mom was a fabulous cook, and That's my right. dad was is no slouch. I mean, he doesn't cook much now, but he had certain dishes that he did, and it was a big part of our family culture, gardening and cooking. Um, so I had that in my head, and then that became, you know, two big influences on me at the University of Kentucky, and I don't talk about them enough, were Herb Reed and Ernie Yanarella. Mm. They really changed the way I thought about... Uh, I know, especially Dr. Yanarella had a class on sustainable agriculture that I taught. But these are these are political science professors, <clears throat> right? They were in your major. Mm-hmm. That's right. And her and Dr. Reed taught a modern American political philosophy class that talked about systems and how mm. centralized large systems mm. are uniquely vulnerable and have a series of extreme disadvantages. And as our society continues to uh, and you can see this. It's It's been an interesting thing that I've tracked my whole, uh, since the time I took his class, which would have been in like 1984 to today, mm-hmm. you think about these systems and how centralized they've mm-hmm. become. And Dr. Yanarella talked a lot about the same things. And I've thought about this over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they both really impacted the way I thought about big systems. And I took that centralization theme and it became one of our hallmark debate arguments that we won the national debate tournament with. So I did a lot of work on it. Mm. I talked about centralized education systems. I've talked 
but I think the most apparent that it is in our society is with food. And I didn't know how, and it, it's, it has struck me in my career how centralized food distribution and production has become so destructive mm -hmm. in our societies. And so I kind of found that not, not saying that when I was a young chef, I understood any of that, but it's been one of these things that's prompted me, um, and stirred me all these years in my career. And so they were two very early influences and they didn't, I didn't even know how they were influencing me at that moment, other than it was through deep curiosity and interest mm -hmm. in those subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've always said that <clears throat> chefs are food. The study of food is, is sort of the study of everything. That mm. was one thing that really intrigued me right from the very beginning, why I decided not to go to law school. Mm. I felt like in order to go to be an effective attorney, I was going to have to either do tax or I was going to have to be a litigator. You know, I was going to have a path, a very right. narrow path. And my days would be spent reading and splitting linguistic hairs. Mm -hmm. Then I felt like it was going to choke off any chance I had at crea uh, creative mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I felt like uh, food opened up this huge aspect of, you know, it's politics, it's <laughs> art, it's mm. craft, Science. it's vocation, yeah. Yeah. it's philosophy. And at that time, we were debating a lot about the philosophy of science and mm. the world ethic and environmental ethics and... So I, I wish know. our I wish our readers could see your hand gestures as you describe the narrow kind of confinement of of what you envisioned as a career in law and then the opening I know <laughs> the natural opening that you demonstrated that's, I mean that's not food. I have some really good friends who are lawyers and that's and I and I that's not fair to them because they're brilliant minds but that's just personally how I felt Well sure Well good. I mean, everyone gets to do what they want. Right. So. <laughs> I was really lucky that I found parents, I had parents who were willing to support me in those choices mm -hmm. and, and, uh, encourage me along mm -hmm. the way. So I consider it my obligation to do that for others, for sure. Which you are doing in a series of restaurants. So how do we get you from, okay, I'm going to be a chef. Um, and I've trained to and I'm back to back in Kentucky <coughs> and I have this these echoes of these um, Im important and somewhat incendiary professors in my head about the de the deficits of large systems, the promise of sustainable agriculture. Right. And now, how do we get you up to, um, is it, I think it's six restaurants and counting. The first person in Lexington to hire me was Debbie Long. And I got rejected everywhere. I had graduated from culinary school, top in my class, and come back to Lexington. Chris had gone, was at this point in New York trying to find a job there. And I went around to everywhere, and uh, Debbie Long and John Foster hired me on the spot. This is at Dudley's, the Dudley's, Dudley's that was in uh, Dudley Square. And I adore both of them. And um, I stayed there three years, and I loved every minute of that restaurant. And it was everything I thought a restaurant should be, like wildly crazy in the kitchen, hot, sweaty, crazy characters. Just down under Down in that basement. Yes. And I learned an incredible amount from both of those people. And they really deserve the credit for bringing local agriculture into the restaurant kitchen in Lexington. Mm -hmm. they, they, Debbie put her money on it and put her money behind it. And John put a lot of sweat equity and 
blood, sweat, and tears by all of us on his team to bring local food to the restaurant table. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that was the first time. And and we didn't value it yet. I mean, it wasn't no. it wasn't a selling point yet. It was just essentially kind of an ethical choice, I think. It was ethical, and it was this idea that we all had that's a French ideal from centuries and centuries of French cooking, which is you get the best that the local market has to offer as a chef, and then you try not to ruin it, and you elevate <laughs> it. Um, but so that happened, and from Dudley's... Um, Chris and I had a few other projects that we were working on, but I ended up working for Harriet Dupree and Eileen McCormick at Dupree's Catering and their chef, Frida Raglan. And the three of them were very inspirational to me. And I learned an incredible amount and I learned not to be a food snob. Um, and I learned what really Southern cooking was all about and Kentucky cooking was all about, um, this catering company. Dupree and Company, which is, it's now been bought by a different, but it's been, just recently been bought, but right. had um, for, I would say, 20 years at least, the, the, was probably the most esteemed and made the most delicious food. Oh, delicious. <laughs> and I thought the interesting thing about Eileen and Harriet were how different they were in their <laughs> cooking styles um, and their tastes uh, and how close they were at the same time and... I also learned the value of being able to be really honest, brutally honest with the people you work with mm-hmm. and that kind of feedback and what can do for mm-hmm. you um, and how to do it lovingly and how to take it lovingly. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that job. And and after that, we did Emmett's um, and Chris was the general manager there. I was the chef and we opened that restaurant for Joe and Elizabeth Coons. While we were there, we got the, uh, uh, we, we did an interview with a fellow named Bob Rouse who, um, came to write an article about Emmett's and he said, Oh, you'll never leave this place. And I said, Oh, never go except for the Holly Hill Inn and Midway. And he said, well, I own that with my dad. (laughs) I said, well, if you ever want to sell it, would you call us first? And six months later he called and he said, well, uh, we want to sell it. How did you, how did you know about the Holly Hill Inn? The Holly Hill Inn has been a restaurant for since 1975, so this is its 35th anniversary coming mm. up in November. And um, I had had my bridal shower there. Ah, uh, you had you'd been there and you'd seen. I'd its been charms. there and seen it. It, it. You were already under its spell. And Chris and I were driving around. I mean, we were looking for a place like Holly Hill Inn that could be made in the image of the herb farm outside of Seattle or the Inn at Little Washington outside mm-hmm. of Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. That could be an iconic rural restaurant around an urban area mm-hmm. that would have access to local food. We had local food in our business plan. And we were kind of living the dream. And I mean, MFK Fisher writes these incredible essays about her her life with food. And one of these essays, she's traveling around the French countryside by herself. And she goes into this inn. And the whole image of her eating lunch in this inn um, with this woman and <laughs> who's done the cooking and then is waiting on her table... It comes to light. We walk into the Holly Hill Inn, and it's just all right there, you oh, know. And I just wow. felt full with uh-huh. this vision of what the inn could be, and what it was, and what, and just everything. It's a rich place. It's a very rich place, and to me, it's always been way more than a restaurant. I mean, it's the heart and soul of our company, and it's my heart and soul. And 
It's Willis. Every time we say maybe we should sell the Holly Hill Inn, Willa goes into like a fit, an apoplectic fit. Oh, good. Well, Willa keeps choking there <clears throat> for Willow. I think it's, it's safe if, to say we're never selling. I mean, never say never, <laughs> I guess. But we, we, we love it. She'll sell it. She'll sell it one day. <laughs> yeah, she'll sell it. She'll grow sick of it one day when we're long gone, hopefully. I, and she'll you know, say to us, Mom's spinning in her grave. But no. <laughs> And you now live just next to we, it. We live next door. And we bought the house. We sold. We lived on Short Street here in Lexington. Had a little house on Short Street. And uh, we sold it. And we used the proceeds from that house along with the investment of my former debate coach and now business partner, Roger Solt. Um to buy the Holly Hill Inn. We lived upstairs for the first four years. I'd forgotten that part. Well, of course you did. Yeah, we lived upstairs. and um, Now people get to eat upstairs. Now people get to eat there. Two rooms. Yeah. yeah. And then the other businesses have just come organically as opportunities have arose, have, have arisen. So talk about, um, if you're willing, the, the way you think about food and food systems and Kentucky food and restaurants now. Now you're in a different spot than right. you were when you were working with John Foster and, and Debbie Long. Yeah. And kind of coming into the reality of it all. Now you're in a, in a really different place. How do you see it now? When we started, and I think when I started with Debbie and John, you know, I wanted to be a famous chef. There's just no doubt about it in my mind. I really, I really had this chef persona and you might still have it a little tiny bit just a little i know <laughs> but i think about it you know like when i opened the holly hill and i didn't want to have any kids working there i didn't want to have to teach anybody anything i've said this many times to other people and and now my whole idea about that has completely changed and i feel like everything i do i'm doing for the future in a way and not for um not for myself but now for the new young chefs that are working for us um and it's hard because although I really, for the first time too, our company has grown to the point where we are bigger, we're substantially bigger, and we're going to be doubling our size next year. And so the, the trick for us is to, we will be engaging more and more into this centralized food distribution system that I've worked so hard to diversify in our community. Mm. I think for me, everything that I do, I want to do around the central Kentucky food culture and enrich it. I don't think restaurants are necessarily the way to do that. But for me, they've been a vehicle <clears throat> to express a market strength of local food. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I think it's limited what restaurants can do. I think we can... Now, a restaurant like Holly Hill is iconic in a particular way mm-hmm. and expressive in a particular way. And it's a singular expression of Chris and I. Mm-hmm. So... It's not about, that's the business plan. It's not a particularly good business plan, but it is to this day expressive of who we are as people mm-hmm. in a way that our that's other why restaurants. It's so beautiful, by it, the way. It people is, that haven't been there. It's sweet and unvulnerable. <laughs> and, but the other restaurants are a little different than that. Mm-hmm. They express place and they express, hopefully, Kentucky in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're delicious in their own ways. Right. Wonderfully delicious. But the idea around what we're really trying to, what I'm trying to show, first of all, I want to celebrate Kentucky. I want to celebrate everything about my community in my business. I'm not aspiring to be the same as a New York restaurant or the same as an urban restaurant or what you might find in France. I'm aspiring to be what we can do in Kentucky. It's like you're you're 
and creating something new we might not have a name for yet. But about four years ago, maybe, I happened into the middle of a demonstration you were doing at the Incredible Food Show. Oh, yeah, I remember and that. You were, With the, Mr. Tap. Mr. Tap Veal. Tap. It was yeah. Veal. That's exactly right. And you were up there cooking, and then you got into, you just started preaching this sermon, and you said, you know, you just, you, people just cannot be confused. We are, Kentucky, we're an agrarian state. In fact, you said, this is the epicenter. We are the epicenter of agrarian food. <laughs> and um, we were not, and in fact, we still don't think of ourselves enough that way. We never and, think of ourselves, Kentuckians just, they just never think of themselves as the best in anything, except for maybe basketball, which I'm da- I'm down for that. I love that. But like, I mean, we're not, I mean, it's just a constant denigration mm-hmm. of what we actually are here. Mm-hmm. I'm just sick of people coming up to me and saying, oh, gee, this restaurant could be anywhere. I, I think I said that. that, that, that is, that's, what kick, that's what kicked it off. Go ahead. Do I feel that. like people yeah. say that to me all the time. Oh, this is good enough to be, you know, this could be in, wow, you could be in Chicago or New York. And I always want to say, well, no, I'm right where I should be. Mm. This place and whatever restaurant you're in, it springs from here. Mm-hmm. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. We're this good. We are excellent. We're excellent at what we do. And we're and not, it's not just me. It's 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 everything about our agricultural community is excellent. It is. It's superb. And it's better than what any of my friends can get in New York or California. I mean, it's 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 mind-boggling the number of Young, I mean, I know we have a farming crisis, a generational farming crisis. I know we are confronting huge issues around agriculture. But at the same time, in 1993, there was nobody distributing local produce. There was no, there was no company distributing local produce. UK hadn't even heard of a local hamburger. I mean, there was nothing to be found in the local market. And you look at that. That was thir- tw- that was 23 years ago at this point, but that was just within my working career, mm-hmm. and I'm not retired yet. And today, you can buy local beef from many distributors, mm-hmm. and you can buy local chicken. And we have new processors. We have Marksberry Farm. We mm-hmm. have, you know, and we've we've had pioneers. I I, I like to lay it. You know, I lay that on the shoulders of Ann B. Stone because she was visionary in the way she saw this agricultural revolution that could happen in our community. And it is happening, and it has, to a large degree, happened. It is underway. It is and underway. Is sure. We don't, before we shift to um, the last couple of things that we like to do in every show, are there people, ideas... Um, concepts that you want particularly to be sure we know. Not that you'll never get another chance to talk about what, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> what's influenced you in your in your career, but are we missing anything really crucial? Because we certainly have not covered all the things you hope to. Oh, I don't. I mean, I have a lot of the same influences as other people. I want to say that um, there was. One life-changing event, series of events for me in my career was were these dinners that I did with this incredible woman named Phyllis Prebober, who is a food historian and archaeologist from uh, Bryn Mawr, who came to the University of Kentucky's Gaines Center. I got to go to one of those. And I know I have an idea, kind of that these are unlike any other, other meals. unlike yes. any other meals. And yes. she was in her eighties when she came here, and mm. 
her idea around her study of food history and her, she brought together these ideas for me that mm. I'm expressing today. Mm. She sort of bridged the gap between Dr. Yanarello and Dr. Reed and my cooking and the local buying and, hmm. and history and food culture, creating a sense of human history, human place, and how it did for the Greeks, how it did that for the Romans, what it said about their culture. And I want us to have that here. Yeah. So we, we, we thank her too. We have a lot of people to express gratitude for that are, that were important in you, to you. Yeah. Um, and you're so important to us. And well, gosh, thanks, Rona. You are. You're, there's, that makes me you're, feel good. But you're incomparable. You're irreplaceable. You're 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 amazing. Well, and and do be, you're embarrassing me now? Okay, good. <laughs> While you're being embarrassed, let me talk a little bit about a couple of upcoming food events. Okay. And do you have a food safety tip after that that you want to share? If not, it's okay. I blew it on food safety this week. All right. All right <laughs> let me, let, we'll, we'll we'll just do a couple of event things, and then we'll um, we'll head out with some music. I have a feeling. Um, all of our music is always curated by our amazing Chris Michael, <laughs> who has many, many gifts in addition to um, the, the gifts that help him run this restaurant empire. Um, Patience with his wife being one. Look at him shaking his head. Well, <coughs> we all have to have that or we just can't get very far. Um, so tonight, our dearly beloved poet laureate, Crystal Wilkinson. Ooh has the release party Yay! of the Birds of Opulence. It's uh, its formal publication date was yesterday. Tonight's the release party. It's at Wild Fig Books and Coffee at 726 North Lime. Um, Crystal thrilled us. I think, was it our very first show? Yes. Uh, by reading a food-based section from that, uh, from that book. And I have a copy up there. Waiting. Congratulations, Crystal. Yes, Crystal, we're so happy for you. And we hope... Way too many people come to fit into wild. I hope things. lines are wrapped around them. <laughs> that's right. And that everyone wants to buy 10 books. That's the other thing that we hope. Uh, so that's tonight at 7 at 726 North Lime. Um, and then the University of Kentucky Food Systems Symposium mm. has been announced. Uh, it's a two-day event in April, but one part of it. Uh, on April 7 from 3.30 to 6.30 at the ES Good Barn, and there is parking there on the UK campus. Um, one part is public, and that part is called, the title for that, I mean, I'm going to read it here. It's called Building a Campus-Wide Multi-Stakeholder Initiative or Program on Sustainability. Yeah. There's, there's Ernie Yanarella's old term. And Food System Studies, Learning from Our Leaders in the Field. So they're bringing in... Uh, three experts, one from Emory, one from the University of New Hampshire, one from the University of Vermont, that socialist republic. Um, <laughs> and they're going to help um, all of us think about food systems at the University of Kentucky, which we have come to think of as it's really one of the crucial nodes in our food system, mm -hmm. um, that one that people tried to influence and hope to learn from. So that is April 7, 3.30 to 6.30. I'm so glad to see UK. I want to say I'm an alum, and the University of Kentucky cannot separate themselves from the from the food culture of our community. They aren't they they so much of what our students learn, what they eat, how the College of Agriculture is formed, and the College of Agriculture at UK rocks. 
they rock. They're awesome. And the way that they've approached sustainable agriculture in the last, you know, tw- you know, tw- two decades mm-hmm. yes. and the diversification programs and UK to be having the symposium, we need to get out there and support the university in this and Scott Smith. And uh, because it is just and phenomenal. This is women's women's month. Lily Breslin. Lillian, Lillian <clears throat> is fabulous. These are people who are, who are producing this and it's <clears throat> the Tracy farmer. I'm yeah. not going to have the total the Tracy Farmer sustainability—it's not quite right, but anyway, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put the right name. But there is an institute at the university that Tracy Farmer, who was a restaurateur, among yeah. other things, he started TGI Fridays, one yes. of the first shareholders in Kentucky <clears throat> Fried Chicken. That's right. So he invested in this sustainability institute at the university, um, which has been going now for quite a while, and they are the main sponsors, I believe. And then the yeah. food systems, <clears throat> food connections, and the other pieces of sustainability at UK are taking part. Yeah. Is anyone ever? Does anyone have last words? Kentucky is the epicenter. <laughs> Thanks, Rona. Uh, last words. Oh, man. We'll be back next week. And this month, we're going to feature um, women who make a huge difference in Kentucky's food systems and Kentucky's food future. So we'll we'll look forward to talking with you again next week. Bye, Rona. Bye, Rita. Bye, Chris. Bye. We'll see you next week. a great chef. Well, training and technique, of course, plus a great love of food, a generous personality, and the ability to invent hot chocolate truffles. Meltingly addictive hot chocolate truffles. Balls of creamy chocolate filling that are rolled in fresh crumbs. Let's have another piece. As long as the dough is relaxed, it's ready to roll. Ready to roll. Let's have another piece. Freshness is essential. That makes all the difference. I like to smell something cooking. This is Rona Roberts, food writer and host of Savoring Kentucky. You're listening to WLXL LPFM Lexington. This is a test of the Boogie Down production prevention against suck MCs. In the event of a real emergency, you would have been instructed on which jams to play and how loud to blast your radio. And now, a word from our sponsor. From the Bronx, Blastmaster KRS-One, proving that my job ain't done until I get some more. No need to roar or yell, cause I can still tell what will sell and what have sold without yelling over a drum roll. That style is old. So unfold, blossom, bloom, you got the room. So go ahead and consume a new era. KRS-One comes better. Bite another lyric? Never, cause I'm too clever. However, I own my own label. Partners with Scott LaRock, he's on the turntable. And partner Lee Smith, I'm exercising a true gift just to uplift. Hip hop, hip hop, my voice is like a monster. And now a word from my sponsor. Two 
three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I gotta start this rhyme again. How many words can I find that rhyme? And still keep in mind, every lyric must come out on time. Not many, but I have plenty. Scott LaRock sent me just 